0: Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He goes on, he talks about beginning in the Spirit and trying to finish in the flesh. He says, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul felt like the Galatians had started in the Spirit and he was getting worried that they were being sucked into the flesh. Why do you feel like he might have been concerned that they were getting sucked into the flesh. We know that to the Colossians, to the Romans, to the Galatians, he warned that they not be pulled back into a certain form of externalism, to a certain form of legalism, some would say. I want to ask you a question, was Paul worried that the Galatians were being too hard on themselves? Was that why Paul wrote them? Is that why he wrote the Colossians there in the second chapter? Philippians as well. Is that what what his concern was? He said, you're being enslaved again to do's and don'ts. Do not touch. Do not taste. So on and so forth. He said, these are too hard on you. And I would remind you of your liberty that is in Christ, and the ease and comfort that it attends that liberty. Is that pretty much what his concern was? Because that's exactly what we're taught by the Evangelical church today. They teach you that Paul didn't want people getting sucked into externalism and legalism because he wanted them to have an easier life. Is that the truth? Can anybody tell me that that's the truth? I want you to defend it if you can. What does he say there? He says, these to be sure have an appearance of religion, appearance of piety in self-imposed religion and buffeting of the flesh, but they are They are useless or of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul's concern was, you're using a pea shooter to try to kill a lion. And that kind of religion is just not powerful enough. That kind of obedience is just not lethal enough. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He sets them aside because they're not potent enough. And that's what he's asking here in Galatians. For the Dan ministered a couple years ago how Paul says to the Galatians, you are desiring to be enslaved again. And we have to ask ourselves, why would any religious group of people desire to be enslaved? what would possibly motivate someone to be enslaved? What would possibly motivate someone to go subject themselves to do's and don'ts in the manner that are of no value against the flesh? If the Lord is calling the flesh to a crucifixion, then a few do's and don'ts sounds awfully fun. Sounds awfully doable manageable. We can incorporate a little bit of self-discipline that we can take pride in, but we can't incorporate the crucifixion of our carnal nature and the dethroning of our will in complete obedience to the will of God. How many of you remember when I ministered from Isaiah 62 not too long ago, or was it 60? I forget now. I'm not going to look it up, where he says, He who offers grain is like he who offers swine blood. He who offers incense is like he who blesses an idol. He who offers a lamb is like he who breaks a dog's neck. And he who offers an ox is like he who slays a man. Do you remember this? He said, because you have chosen your own way. Now we are aware that all of these sacrifices were initially required by God. But in the time of their initial requirement, they represented a step toward God. They represented a true and heartfelt sacrifice. They still made people feel the sting and reality that sin brought through death. But then, human beings had incorporated it. They had reabsorbed it into the rhythms of religiosity. And they were just going about doing it like it was the ordinary thing. Until the thing which God initially commanded becomes odious to him. It becomes obnoxious. He says it's like breaking the neck of a dog or killing a man or spilling pig's blood. The very thing that God once commanded. David, we've been told for decades, it's been spoken to us, the passage where David was going to offer a sacrifice at the house of Obed-Edom, remember? And he said, the housekeeper, the, the man who owned the house, Obed-Edom, said, take everything. David said, I want to buy this place from you and I want to make an offering to the Lord. And, and the owner, who is a pagan, as far as I remember, a Gentile at least, he said, no, take it all. You, you could have it. And David said, no, no, I will not offer to my God that which costs me nothing. David remembered all the way back to Abel and Cain that you got to have something in it. Amen. It's not about going through the motions. God has been rejecting those sacrifices since the first sacrifice ever offered. It's got to cost you something, it's got to come from inside. Amen. And that's really what the Lord was saying in Isaiah. You've gotten, you've incorporated this process until it's no longer costing you something. It no longer means something to you. It's just part of the rhythms that you're going through. And it's not pleasing to me anymore. It's obnoxious. It's worse than doing nothing because you're doing it your own way. Thank you, Jesus. And so why was Paul picking on the Galatians about their return to ceremonial Judaism? Because God had called them to the obedience of the Spirit. He didn't want them to go back to living by the flesh, in the flesh, but in the forms that can make them feel proud about themselves. He doesn't want us to buffet the flesh with the flesh. He wants us to crucify the flesh. But he tells us in Romans exactly how. 8th chapter, the 14th verse, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Not if by your little manufactured do's and don'ts. You can set your own pace, you can mark out your own race and then run it and pride yourself. Look, here's my self-imposed religion. Look at what a good person I am. But we don't really mark out the course that we're supposed to run. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith and we say, God, you're the one. All my times are in your hands. I asked recently a question and I want to visit it again tonight. I asked, referring to externalism, referring to these do's and don'ts, can you think of anything in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul assailed more vehemently than circumcision? Can you? I can't. I mean, he beats up on it every time he gets a chance. In just about every epistle, he finds some way to just grind that into the dirt. Right? He says circumcision is nothing. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Those who were stubborn and sticking to it, he said, you are dogs of the concision. He said to others, I would that you would go all the way and emasculate yourselves. He had very little patience for these people. And yet in what would seem like an irony or a paradox, we're told in the book of Acts that he circumcised Timothy. So did Paul have something intrinsic against circumcision? Was there something about the the act itself that was intrinsically evil, harmful? No. But we know that circumcision was the entrance and sign of the Old Covenant. And what replaced circumcision according to Colossians 2 10 and 11? Baptism. baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. But baptism isn't made with men's hands. Baptism is a pledge toward God, a pledge that must be walked out, that must be kept. It's a covenant that comes from the heart where we keep that old man buried. So people who find baptism too arduous, people who become weary in keeping their old man in the grave, they're going to want to go back to something that is a whole lot easier that makes them feel like, oh, they've got this in the bag. I am of the elect. I am of the chosen. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee among Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. If any man hath something to boast in, it is I. And Paul hated That these rituals were becoming substitutes for the reality that God was presenting in the new covenant. Somebody asks me, Do you have a problem with the sinner's prayer? You've spoken disparagingly of it. Do you have a problem with the sinner's prayer? Well, of course not. I think probably for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, who prayed that prayer, It was a sincere step in the right direction. But I have a problem with anything that man takes possession of and turns into another little formula that does not depend on the living reality and presence of God. So we can turn any of these things, we can even turn baptism today into what circumcision was for that day, where it doesn't entail the commitment where it doesn't involve the lived-out relationship, where it doesn't have the risk of losing your life like it did in the days of Paul, we can turn it into another ritual. But God is looking at your heart. His, the rituals and the superficial, they do not impress him. He looks right past it, and he wants to know, are you giving everything, or are you giving the minimum? The least you have to to get away with it. Paul hated circumcision because it was a substitute. Not because it was intrinsically problematic in a natural sense. Externalism is just a shortcut attempt to bypass real spiritual transformation. Transformation manifests itself externally. Externally. But externalism does not conversely manifest itself internally. Do you understand? What did Jesus say? In this new kingdom I'm coming to bring, I want people to be indistinguishable from the world. Stay among them and be united, says the Lord. Is that what he said? He said, you know, in the past they worried about cleaning the outside of the cup, but now I want it covered with grime. I want as many tattoos and ungodliness and filth on the outside of that cup as possible. Just make sure you keep the inside clean. Is that what he said? No. He didn't want people faking the reality on the inside by producing a false veneer on the outside. He told them if you'll deal with the problem on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. First, clean the inside of the cup And he said, the outside will be clean also. He didn't say the outside can remain filthy because God only looks on the inside. He said, if it's really clean on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. But if you set about worrying about the outside, you may never get to the inside and it may be full of dead men's bones. Does God care about what's on the outside of a person's life? Well, he has to because he said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. John the Baptist was the first one. He said the axe is already laid at the, root, at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Amen? But do we believe that the core, the tree, the essential essence of human nature, do we believe it's capable of, of bearing good fruit, of producing the fruits of the Spirit? He told him, the axe is laid to the root, go bear fruit in keeping with repentance. No, we believe that that tree inside of us, that is our carnal nature, cannot produce the things of God. We believe the carnally minded man cannot understand the things of God and he is at war with God. And it cannot be reconciled. He's in an irreconcilable opposition to God. And that the only solution is to uproot that old nature in repentance and allow a new nature to be sown into the broken soil of our hearts. That's the only solution. But Jesus does care about fruit. John 15, every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes but every branch that does not bear fruit, he breaks away and throws into the fire. What is the difference between externalism, in the negative sense of how the Bible speaks of it, and fruit? Amen. Externalism is something that goes on the outside, but fruit comes from inside the tree and expresses itself outside. Externalism cannot be eaten and no one can derive nourishment from it. But fruit is to be plucked and eaten. It is a provision of life and energizing of grace in the spirit to those who partake of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So God cares about the outside. But does he ever try to take care of the root by picking on the fruits. No, he takes care of the fruits by picking on the root. He goes to the core of the matter and he ignores all the appearances, all the externals, and he tries to get to the core. Amen. Now, this process is arduous. It's painstaking. At times, it's exasperating and we would like to bypass it. We would like to do a little shortcut. If we can't really get inside that bottle because it's got a tight neck around it and we can't really clean it on the inside, well then we're just gonna really make sure it's clean on the outside. Let's buff this up, let's shine this, let's make it look real good and pretty and maybe we can skate by for a season without having to worry about what might be inside. There's a kind of ministry that does this. There's a kind of ministry that loves to capitalize on the external. But it's not because it's more zealous or filled with faith concerning the power or will of God. It's trying to take a shortcut. It's trying to do a bypass. It's denying That God has got to do it by his grace, by his anointing. That if the Lord builds the house, we're okay. But if anybody else does it, we're laboring in vain. And so it wants to jump to the particulars, wants to jump to the externals. And I ask myself, why, why is this? Why is it that people seem prone to want to jump to the externals? Let me try to elaborate what this means. Let's say there's a daughter or a son or a new convert in the family or the fellowship of a man of God or a mentor, a sister. Let's say that this man of God is uncommonly spiritual. And I'm speaking sincerely. That he is devoted to prayer, that he has a, a walk in the spirit, that he's marked by humility and gentleness, that there is a grace and an anointing about him. But you look at the people in his life who he's supposed to be discipling, and oftentimes you feel like, yeah, we got everything looking just right. We have learned a certain mannerliness, We have learned a certain etiquette. We have learned certain rote responses that even look genuine, but it's related to Hollywood, the skills to produce them. And we cry when it's the right time to cry. and We say, yes, sir, when it's the right time to say, yes, sir. But for years, these persistent roots keep sending up their shoots where you say, that shouldn't be there. That should have been gone a long time ago. Why is that still coming up? What is going on here? That's what I'm trying to get at. There's something inside of us as parents or as ministers or as mentors. We want to skip ahead to the easy stuff. It's easier to get millions of people to go through the motions of formula. That's how the Catholic Church is so massive than to actually see people transformed from the inside out by the power of God alone. But if we don't watch it, we're going to become accomplices in their self-deception. We're going to help them fake it. I look at the, the evidence that the Bible gives for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues. And I, with all of you, say... What a beautiful, powerful thing. I love that. I I love that God has this one thing that we can't fake. That the proud man is never going to speak in tongues in any meaningful way. That the Spirit is never going to take hold of the egomaniac and make him dance like David danced. I love that the gifts and signs and manifestations of the Spirit are outside the reach of the flesh, right? And yet I'm telling you the truth. I've gone to places like South Africa and other countries and continents, and almost invariably, I have run into people in these places, and these other brothers can testify to this, who say, oh, Pentecostalism, I know about that. There's this guy in our city who who teaches people how to speak in tongues. God, blah, 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 you got it. I can't tell you how that hurts and burns inside of me. Because the one thing that was untouchable to man, that wasn't a formula, that only God could produce, man has figured out how to reproduce that in the flesh. And you say, well, if anybody had discernment, they would know, and I believe that. I believe that anybody who had discernment would know whether someone was really speaking in an unknown tongue as the Spirit gave utterance versus as a man gave utterance. Amen. So I don't believe that if you had discernment, I I don't have any doubt that you could tell the difference between the fake and the real in that instance. But what about when it comes to behavior? What did Solomon say when he became king over the nation of Israel? He said, O oh Lord, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. You need to get the revelation that good and evil requires discernment. When it's obvious, you're not even needed. But when it looks good and it's not really that's when your discipleship is really needed. Give me discernment that I may know between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Solomon did not feel like the dynamics of good and evil were readily apparent to the flesh. He felt like he needed something supernatural from God. He needed x-ray vision to see into it. And I believe that's what's severely lacking in pastoral discipleship a lot of times. We either do not care enough to seek God for that kind of discernment, or we're afraid of what we're going to see. Can I give you an example of some pastoral discipleship? Who do men say that I am, Peter? Well, you are Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Blessed are you. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Let's prepare for the cross. Oh, no, Lord, we will not let this be. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus was not afraid to see something very problematic in the disciple who he loved and trusted perhaps more than any of them. He was not afraid to call a spade a spade. He did not have some kind of notion that said, well, if he's an apostle, and if he's just been anointed with this revelation, surely this can't be what it looks like. He called it what it was. And that's what's needed. Discernment to say, what is really going on in this person's life? I am not going to jump ahead and help them fake the Holy Spirit, either the initial evidence or the fruits of it. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such things, there is no legalism. There is no law. That's what he's saying, amen? Is it real? Well, somebody may be able to fake one or two of them on those lists. Maybe they'll fake the love, but that won't last. Love. What's the second fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Does this person have joy in their life? Do you have the joy of the Lord, which is your energizing strength? Peace? Does this person, are they full of anxiety? well, then they do not have the peace of God that's supposed to rule in your hearts. we got to make up our minds. Are we going to help people mimic righteousness or are we going to help them become righteous? Are we going to help them go clip real fruits off of other trees and tape it on their old dried up stumps? Or are we going to acknowledge if this is still a stump, then it's because there is a lack of repentance. And we are going to deal with the root. Like John told the Pharisees, we're going to deal with the root because he tells us in Job, there is hope for a tree if it would be cut down. Though its stump grow old in the ground, though its root and branches fail, yet at the sin of water, God can bring a resurrection if there'll just be a real death. Or are we going to content ourselves with this learned spirituality whereby people put on appearances, but we never penetrate? In 1 John 4, a very familiar passage, the Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. That's a pretty categorical statement. Were there times in Jesus' ministry as he was traveling with the disciples, were there times when he disbelieved some of the spirits in his own disciples? He told Peter, Get behind me, Satan, because you are infatuated with natural things. You savor the things that be of man rather than the things that be of God, and for that reason, you're a stumbling block to me. Was that the only time he didn't believe the spirits in his own disciples? Can you think of another time? So call down fire from heaven. Yeah, they wanted to stay the night. The disciples have been walking a ways. It's like Samaria's got a hotel. It's five star on Yelp. Can we stay here? <laughs> I'm kidding. And he says, the Samaritans said, no, thank you. We don't want you. The anim- animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews seemed to have gone both ways in this instance. And... Uh, John and James had a great solution. We can solve this. Lord, could we call down fire from heaven to consume these people for their disrespect? If you don't mind very much. And what did he say? He told them they didn't know their own spirit. You don't know what spirit is using you. You don't know what spirit you're of. You're tapping into an anointing, but it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of vengeance that is rooted in pride and violence. That's not why I came. But John said he must have learned from that because he tells us, don't believe every spirit. Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian... You need to come into reality. You need to wake up and realize that our warfare is not carnal. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You're like, yeah, I can just almost see the darkness way out there. No. Jesus was wrestling these principalities in his own disciple Peter and his own apostles John and James. I think he could have said the same thing when they asked to sit on his left and right you don't know what spirit you're of. We need to discern the spirit. We need to not believe every spirit. We need to put on a spiritual mind. It says the spiritual man assesses the spiritual things of God. Beloved, do not believe every tall tale. Excuse me, every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many baloney false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, I don't know if James and John were false prophets, but they were tapping into the wrong spirit, weren't they? And Jesus knew how to test the spirits. Are you in real submission to the lordship, of the true Holy Spirit, amen, or is this a spirit of the world, a spirit of this age, a zeitgeist, a dynamic, an energizing of Satan and the sons of disobedience, the sons of Bilal. Lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. If more people could catch the problem in its infant stages, it wouldn't destroy so many people. You've got to identify it when it takes discernment to know it. You've got to be able to call. I see a distinction between good and evil. You don't know what spirit you're of. Amen. Now you're full of complexes and doubts and inferiority cobwebs. You're not going to be able to do that. But if you're really willing To move in the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit. There's no such thing as an anointing that is not authoritative. Because now the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit does not come to rub shoulders. He comes to convict. Period. Three, Three brands of conviction, but conviction all the way. Look at this scripture in Philippians 1 and 9. I'll read it to you from the Amplified and the New American Standard. He says, This I pray, that your love may may abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development in a full knowledge and keen insight that your love may display itself in greater depth of acquaintance and more comprehensive discernment so that you may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value recognizing the highest and best and distinguishing the moral differences and that you may be untainted and pure and unerring and blameless so that without so that with hearts sincere and certain and unsullied you may approach the day of Christ without stumbling or causing others to stumble Now that's a lot as the Amplified is wont to do. That's pretty adjective rich. So let me just read it out of this one and you see if you get it again. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Do you consider that real knowledge and discernment is the environment where love abounds more and more? Have you ever thought about that? That discernment and insightful knowledge is the environment where love abounds more and more. The clueless, just going along to get along, that is not an enrich, That's not a love that is being enriched, that is being deepened, that is expanding. But I believe that after Peter was rebuked and after James and John were rebuked I actually believe that they felt love abounding in their lives I believe they sat by their cots that night and said James you know it never occurred to me that I was moving under an ugly spirit when I said that it didn't me either John but I know that's it's changing the way I think and I believe that the area and the space, the the territory where the Spirit could reign was bigger the next morning. The Lord is the Spirit. There's no kingdom without anointing because we don't have a president sitting in a white house in this kingdom of God that we're praying will come on earth as it is in heaven. We have a Lord who is invisible, who is inaudible, who is intangible except for those who can get out of their trapped existence in the perspective of the external and the flesh and come into that dimension where he reigns, where he discerns, where he discerns all things. Help us. Help us. Help us to stop fixating on the outside and help us to see into it. How many times in the ministry of Jesus does it say, And knowing their thoughts, he said unto them. And discerning their hearts, he said unto them. The roof has just been opened. A paralytic has just been lowered. He's just forgiven the guy of his sins. And the Pharisees are whispering inside their own brains, thinking about what he just did. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, which is easier for me to say, Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power, here, take up your mat and walk. You can see that transformation, but the transformation of forgiveness was just as real. But he knew their thoughts. He discerned what was going on. I remember the story, is it Peter? Yes, it's Peter when, is it Elimus or Simon the sorcerer? Simon the sorcerer asks him for money. Hey, uh, this, this looks pretty attractive. Uh, I've never been able to perform these tricks. Could I, uh, could I buy your power to give the Holy Ghost? And he discerned something. Amen. He didn't say, uh, no, sir, but could we talk about this later? He said, I discern. God revealed something through that. The same God who was discerning the disciples and discerning Peter as moving in the power of Satan Well, this Peter's now, the Spirit's using this Peter. I discern that you are caught in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. I mean, who would have thought that a sorcerer, that the root of his problem was that he was bitter? Who would have thought that? Nobody. But the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And somebody was willing to move in that discernment. This is what God is calling us to. It goes for discipleship. It goes for evangelism. It goes for parenting. It goes for every place where Jesus is supposed to be Lord. Hebrews 5, everyone who continues to feed on milk is obviously inexperienced, and unskilled in the doctrine of righteousness. That is, the doctrine of conformity to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action. He is a mere infant, not able even to talk, but solid food is for full-grown men, for those whose senses and mental faculties are trained by practice to discriminate and distinguish between what is good and noble and what is evil and contrary, either to divine or human law." Again, the Amplified. The Word of God is living or quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If we would just yield to the word of God in receiving it, in giving it, it would discern. It would do half the problem for us. Would you be willing to say what Paul, I mean, what Peter said to Simon the sorcerer? To a man you'd never met, would you be willing to say that? Would you be willing to say, I discern that you are in the the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity, and you will be blind for a season? Would you be willing to say that? You shouldn't be willing to say that unless the Holy Spirit was anointing you to say it, but, but would you be willing to say that? Is it even possible that you would allow the Spirit to anoint you in that way? Or do you have a learned righteousness? Do you have a learned spirituality that is really just mimicry of the Spirit? Where things go along certain predictable ruts and routes and God never has to interrupt it. If you're coming from another church, say a Baptist church or evangelical or Mennonite or I don't care where, and you you want to get the mystery, you want to get the inside scoop, how does this work? It doesn't apart from men and women who are willing to start moving in the anointing and the grace and the love of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it works. You can't see the kingdom and you can't enter it apart from that. I'm afraid. I look around and I say, does that person know what it means to come under the anointing? To tune in? Amen. If you're trying to fight the flesh with the flesh, all you can hope to do is come to a compromise. Come to a truce. I'll learn to coexist in the same house with your fallen nature if you'll coexist in the same house with my fallen nature. But how do we put to death the deeds of the flesh? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. We're not trying to figure out how to be compatible with each other's carnal nature. We're trying to help crucify this flesh with all its passions and all its opinions and all its perspectives and all its desires. That's it. That's the only way this works. When Paul spoke to the Corinthians, what did he say? When I was with you, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. But he said, my preaching was with a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? He didn't end there. He said, so that. What was the so that? So that your faith would not rest in man. And who's the man he's talking about? He said, I was with you in weakness. He didn't want them putting their faith in his flesh. He didn't want to set up another little dog and pony show where people knew who to follow. He didn't want to make another club. He wanted people to believe they could have a relationship with God. He wanted their faith in the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not into being. We're not trying to insinuate ourselves in a relationship with anybody here that undermines or replaces or negates your need to have that direct encounter with God in your own life. But if you need us, it's not really us that you need. You just need the water, the anointing that this hose happens to carry. So we can say with John, you don't have any need for us to teach you, but if you're going to hear anything from us, may it be the anointing of God. And we can say with Paul, you received our word not as the word of man, but as it was in truth, the very word of God. How do you know it's the Word of God? Is it quick and powerful? Is it sharp? Does it discern? Brothers and sisters, this is what has built this church. Not programs, not formulas. We want formulas because it's going back to circumcision, it's going back to something I can do with my own two hands. But this kingdom will not be built with what man does. He's giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What he's gonna be shaking is everything that was made by man. We're not looking for formulas that mimic or mirror or imitate what happens in the spirit. We're looking for people to become more than mere men. We're looking for people to become men of the spirit, women of the spirit, fathers of the spirit, pastors of the spirit. It's not a formula. There is no formula. Formula is just to replace a relationship. God wants a relationship. What God is calling us to is so much more vulnerable, so much less insulated and secure than what we're currently walking in. We don't need to be downcast. We don't need to be discouraged. We need to know that God's spirit, James tells us, his spirit yearns jealously for you. Every time he sees us getting ourselves in a pinch where the flesh just starts running the mouth or coming up with advice and ideas, the spirit is brooding over that place saying, would you just shut up? Would you just give me a minute and I'll start to move through you. Amen. I'll start to pray through you with groanings too deep for words. I'm yearning for people just to become conduits to make my power real in this world. Amen. Would you wait upon the Lord? Would you move in the grace? Amen. So many of us, and I've ministered from this before, but so many of us we get so tangled up in our inadequacy. It's not about you. Who gives a care about you? It's about them. It's about God's purpose. It's about your king. It's not about you. And we won't move in the faith. He says, He who prophesies must do so in proportion to his faith. You can't give the testimony of Jesus. You can't give that discernment. You can't move except under the anointing. But you can't have the anointing without faith. Listen to this scripture. We have such confidence through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But that's not where he puts the period. What does he say? But our adequacy is from God. Who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter that kills, but of the spirit that gives life you feel inadequate Paul said God has made us adequate so there's a problem but if you feel inadequate what you need is the Spirit you don't need more understanding you don't need more gifts you don't need more practice you don't need more instruction you need the Spirit who has made us adequate amen do you feel that God I can be adequate Everybody likes to stop with, who is adequate? You, that's who. Who has made us adequate? Are we adequate in our flesh? No. Are we adequate without God? No. No. Are we adequate if we try to operate in the letter? If we try to make formulas that mimic the work of the Spirit? No, we're not adequate. We're back to inadequacy. But are we adequate if we would just learn to lean only on the Spirit, yeah, yeah, God's made us adequate. We can, we can check off that excuse. We can do it. We can do God's will. Lord, have you made me adequate? I don't feel adequate. Oh, wait a minute, but you're adequate. Amen. And I can yield to you. Okay, Lord, we can be adequate together. Not exceptional, just adequate, but we can be adequate together. Amen. We can make a change, amen. God wants to use you. God wants to use you to build his kingdom. Our Father who art in heaven, make us adequate through your spirit. In Jesus' name.
1: we yeah.